Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 257. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing westerns. And I'm doing them for a reason. The westerns are, in reverse order, Arizona Raiders starring Audie Murphy from 1965. And then one from 1957 called Gunman's Walk which has Van Heflin, Tab Hunter and James Darren in it. And I'm doing them both for a specific reason. And I'll tell you about that after I get the contact details out of the way. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciation. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old, and it's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also, or you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. So, how have you been? It's still cold here and I don't like it. Uh, And the world's going to hell in 15 different ways as usual. But, you know, we're going to watch movies and enjoy them and that's not in itself a bad thing. In some ways it's been a pretty interesting week too because the MCU dropped its slate for Phase 4, which I'm going to talk about in the next Martian Drive-In podcast because I'm very enthused about some of the choices they've made in Phase 4 of their cinematic universe. And I'm locked into that. Um, I know there's a certain cynicism and a certain concern that people have with the ubiquity and the market domination of Marvel slash Disney. And I did see an interesting thing from three years ago, the Tarantino set, about the way that cinema's changing. And yeah, the big blockbusters are going to be dominated by large plays in the market. But smaller movies are still getting out there. They're getting out there on streaming platforms. They're even getting out through things like... um, you know, YouTube, a whole bunch of different ways for people to see films they might not see otherwise. And that balkanization of popular culture that's been going on for the last 20, 30 years is only going to get more extensive. There are going to be the people that are going to go and see Disney live-action remakes of movies that were very good in the first place. There are people who are just going to go and see the blockbuster films and get the merch with it. There are people who are still going to jizz off to Star Wars, whichever iteration comes up next. But there are also going to be people who deep dive into other things, into movies from other cultures. I know that there are some platforms like Netflix that are starting to show some foreign language stuff that's really interesting, though there is a little bit of formulaic stuff that going on there as well, which is a bit disappointing. But yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting time to be a movie buff with a decent internet connection. And that change in the market dominance by certain players is kind of going to change things and it is something that we should note but I don't know that it's something that should have us all running around tearing our hair out and plucking our eyeballs out of our heads because I don't know that that domination is going to be as ubiquitous as some other people think it is. I know that Disney Plus is doing some stuff for the slate for the fourth um, phase of the MCU that may change things but there's only a certain amount of product there And you're not just going to watch that particular streaming service or go and see those particular movies. You're going to see a lot of other stuff as well because you guys 
are wise and knowledgeable in the ways of the movie. And so you're going to watch other things. You're going to watch things like Gunman's Walk and Arizona Raiders and all sorts of other things like that. You're going to see the new Tarantino movie, which is the reason I'm doing Arizona Raiders and Gunman's Walk, because Tarantino made an announcement recently saying that they were two of the movies that are influential on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I thought I'd take a look at them, partly because I'm going to check out any movie that I don't know too much about that somebody with the knowledge and the ability of Quentin Tarantino recommends. So I'm going through the other movies that he's recommended as well. I'm going to be seeing Jacques Demy's Model Shop, which I've had for a while but haven't watched, and a few other ones that he's mentioned as well. So that's going to be a little bit of a fun journey before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood drops here, I think about August 15th. And by the way, I am using the Richard rule, which means I've got to start talking about the movies at the 15-minute point of the podcast. So I'm keeping that in mind and keeping my eye on the clock there. Ah, let's see. What have I been watching? I did watch a low-budget superhero movie, which is kind of weird. It was made on a fairly small budget by a couple of YouTubers I like. And it's a reiteration of Sid and Marty Croft's Electra Woman and Diner Girl, starring Grace Helbig and Hannah Hart, who are a couple of YouTubers I've been following for a few years playing the titular characters. It's very tongue-in-cheek. There's some witty lines in there as well. They're very smart and very funny women, and they have a nice rapport. They're playing the superheroes, and there are other superheroes in the mix, and shit starts going down years and years after all the supervillains have been defeated. But there's one left, and they don't know how to handle it. And the superheroes don't know how to handle it either because they've forgotten how to deal with supervillains and are used to dealing with prosaic villains. Um, yeah, it's a little bit of fun. It turned up, I think, on Amazon Prime here in Australia. And because I knew the names and I knew the um, the artists, I thought I'd give it a go. They're not to everyone's taste, but it was a little bit of fun. It was one of those kind of late-night things where I was just waiting for the last of the caffeine to leave my blood supply so that I could get some sleep, and that's what I watched. watched a very bad movie from the 60s, House of a Thousand Dolls, starring Vincent Price, George Nader, and Martha Hire, at least two of whom were gay. It's all about white slavery. It's one of those Harry Allen Towers joints from the 1960s, set in, I think, if I recall correctly, give me a sec, yeah, it's supposed to be something like Tangier, but it was actually done in um, Cadiz in Spain and Madrid, Uh, so even that was bullshit, but it it kind of, there's a couple of action sequences that kind of work in it, but for the most part, it's a little bit ordinary. And unless you're a a bit of a completist on Vincent Price movies or even George Nader films, not to dismiss the oeuvre of George Nader, um, then you, you check it out. Then I saw a couple of indigenous themed documentaries because that is another one of my interests. The first one's called, uh, um, Coolbaroo Club which is a documentary about an Indigenous and Aboriginal social club in Perth at a time when things were really racist between the late 19, well, mid-1950s and the early 1960s. They were racist well before and well after that, but that's when the club was going. And it was a social dance club on Saturday nights for the Indigenous communities and people with whom they were social. And they do a lot of interviews with a lot of the people who were involved then, and it talks about the apartheid that was going de facto in Perth at the time, the problems they had with the police, the problems they had 
It was a dry venue because the um, Indigenous people weren't allowed to drink alcohol at that time in that particular state. So there's a lot of talk about that kind of stuff and how the um, Coolbaroo Club was kind of a way, a social nexus for people to get to know each other, to catch up on gossip from long, faraway families. And every time somebody from an Indigenous community came to Perth, they knew they could um, you know, get a, a biscuit and a soft drink and some cake and meet a whole bunch of people down at the club. So it was kind of an important social thing for Indigenous people at that time. The other thing I saw, which is way out of my usual thing, is a documentary called The Final Quarter, which is partly about Australian AFL football, um, but mostly about the racism around one of the players who then went on to become Australian of the Year, a guy called Adam Goods. And it shows that racism is still pretty much a part of Australian society to a big extent. They use documentary footage and just let the footage tell the story. There's no no narration apart from occasional screen crawls just saying this is what happened on this date. Um, and they let the footage talk for itself. There are three particular um, racist pundits who get a real smashing with this one just by their own words. And they are Andrew Bolton, newspaper columnist, Alan Jones, a um, guy who's on radio in Sydney and Brisbane, and a guy called Sam Newman, who's an ex-football player who used to be on a TV show called The Footy Show, which has since ceased production. They also talked to um, a whole bunch of other people there, and it just kind of makes you furious. It was shown actually on, surprisingly enough, a commercial television station here in Australia, and it did get a lot of buzz going about it, uh, the Twitter sphere and the other social media went crazy about it. It was shown about three weeks ago. And the racists came out of the woodwork in masses like hordes of cockroaches in Joe's apartment. And a lot of that kind of stuff went on. And it was kind of interesting just seeing how things haven't changed in since the Coolbaroo Club in particular. There's also the other thing that's going on at the moment where the Indigenous owners are stopping people from climbing Ayers Rock, also known as Uluru, more correctly known as Uluru, in about the end of this, um, sometime towards the end of this year. And there are a whole bunch of white people getting shitty about it. Uh, the traditional owners are kind of enforcing their sovereignty, and so they should too. There are tons of other things you can do around there besides climb on the rock. And apparently there are hordes and hordes of people trying to get in to do that before it becomes illegal to do so. And so there are all these people pissing and shitting on Uluru. And it's a sacred site. It's like climbing the roof of the Vatican and shitting on it, which I can understand from the viewpoint of certain pedophile priests. But that's essentially what they're doing. It's an incredibly important cultural place and an important um, spiritual place for a lot of indigenous cultures in the centre of Australia and um, a lot of right-wing pundits have gone on television saying oh it's our rock too actually it's not it's owned by the indigenous owners so in a sense it's private property that they give certain access to to certain people under certain circumstances but um, so yeah they, that um, <laughs> to get back to the original point the final quarter was a hard watch because it infuriated me, 
but it's a really nice the way the documentary just lets the visuals and the um, words speak for themselves. All they did was they put it into chronological sequence, and that was really a very sharp move by them. The only other thing I've saw seen is a Malaysian animated movie which came up on my Netflix queue called War of the Worlds Goliath. It's set in an alternate universe um, about 15 years after the War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells thing happened in 1899. And uh, they've reverse engineered a lot of the um, Martian technology and they're building up towards World War I. But then the Martians come back and they've got to fight them again using a whole bunch of basically um, mechs, kind of Gundam-style mechs, but in steampunk style, and a whole bunch of flying fortress zeppelins. It's just kind of cool, and it works well. The voice acting's pretty good on it. The animation done by a Malaysian animation studio is not bad at all, and it kind of works. The Martians are great. Uh, the tripod designs and the Martian spaceships uh, are really on point. And they're going up against jet-powered triplanes and all sorts of things like that. It's a nice little effort there, and it showed... And while it's not perfect, I'd love to see more from this particular studio, particularly in this universe, because it is an interesting one. They've got some beautiful little telling details in the production design and in the um, artwork done there. It's a very kind of multicultural international story. It's not told from an Anglo viewpoint one tiny bit, and it kind of worked. So I suppose we do live in a golden age of media as far as genre is concerned. And that's kind of cool. I'm happy with that. I've been waiting for it all my life, so I'm just going to revel in it and like Scrooge McDuck in money my way through whatever media throws at me. If it's stuff that I like, um, I'm not going to feel guilty. I'm not going to feel burnt out. I'm not going to wave my arms in the air and get upset about it. I'm just going to cherry pick what I like and really watch the fuck out of it. And I think that's the attitude we should all take to this stuff. Uh, enjoy the media you enjoy and the stuff that you don't like, apart from cats, which we can all mock tremendously because it looks fucking awful from the trailer, and also it's Andrew Lloyd Webber. But apart from that, pick the media you like and try not to like Star Wars. Anyway, it's time to move on to the westerns, and here's the trailer for the first of the two westerns, and it is Gunman's Walk, directed by Phil Carlson, Starring Van Heflin, Tab Hunter, and James Darren. I'm Ed's brother, isn't it? No. No, it's because you're Lee Hackett's son. 
and because my mother was a Sioux. Listen, I wouldn't care if you were a blood relative of Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, and Red Cloud. Your father doesn't feel that way. I don't care how he feels. Get up on your hind legs. I'm going to beat some sense. You're not going to beat me. Get up and take your licking. What do I have to do, kick you? No, I don't think you'd do that. If you did, you'd have to kill me. You know, I don't know what's going on between you and this Kliegel, but uh, whatever it is, she must brew some mighty potent medicine. Come on, Ed, I'm taking you in. No, you're not, Harry. You haven't got enough sheriffs in this state to take a son of mine in. You get that through your head right now. Bob? Kelly. I want all of these men at the courthouse, and I want them armed. As I said, uh, this is a movie that Quentin Tarantino recommended people watch before they watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, just to get the context. And it's a pretty good little Western. I'm falling more and more in love with the big Westerns. It was a Deadly Companions last episode. And I've been watching, of course, for years, the renowned Westerns, the ones Randolph Scott did with Bud Bedeker. And I find that I really like concise, tightly packed Westerns with a good story. And this is definitely one of those. Uh, it was directed by Phil Carlson, who directed a whole bunch of really interesting movies in the 50s and 60s. Let's have a look here. I'll go through his IMDb. Kansas City Confidential. Uh, let's have a Gummins Walk. Of course, The Brothers Rico. Uh, Held to Eternity. He did Kid Galahad with um, Elvis Presley. Did a really bad TV movie of Alexander the Great, which I think had Shatner in it. Let me have a look. Yeah, Shatner, Adam West, and John Cassavetes. I've got to find a copy of that. But uh, Phil Carlson, a fine director, not kind of front A-list, but reliable. He also did The Silences, the Matt Helm movie with um, Dean Martin in it. But anyway, Gunman's Walk, it kind of works. Um, the story's fairly simple. There are three men running a ranch where um, they basically breed and trade horses. Um, the father's played by Van Heflin. His name's Lee Hackett. The bad son, played by Tab Hunter, and hold that thought, Ed Hackett. And the good son, James Darren, playing a, a character called Davy Hackett, who isn't very good at shooting, doesn't like to carry his gun around, and really is moving forward as that part of Wyoming is civilised. Now, Lee Hackett was one of the people who civilised the place. He fought the Indians. He settled it. He kept the bad guys away. He was a frontier guy, and he's very well regarded in the town by the older people who live there. Um, he's one of the two people in town, beside his son, Ed, who can carry a gun without the sheriff giving them shit about it. Everybody else has got to kind of keep their guns out of town. They're trying to civilise the place. And the problem comes with that privilege that the Hackett family has in that particular part of the world. He's raising his son without a wife because clearly his wife died at some stage previously. And he is trying to teach them what they need to be to be a good man. And his ideas on that are a little bit skewed and a little bit toxic. Um, it's basically uh, not owing anything to anybody, not needing to call in favours, not um, taking shit from any man 
all of those kind of things which are very old school. And we kind of get the impression when Lee talks to his um, main ranch hand, played by a character actor called Paul Birch, who I first saw, and I'm going to digress here a little bit, in a TV series called Cannonball back in the 1950s. And I've got the theme tune to Cannonball stuck in my head ever since I saw Gunman's Walk yesterday. So I'm going to share it to get it out of my head. There was an action TV series about truck drivers, which you don't get much now. You don't get many working class adventure TV series anymore, which is a little bit of a shame. But here's the theme to Cannonball just to get it out of my head. Barreling down the highway, wheeling right along Hear the tires humming, humming out a song The rumble of the diesel, the shifting of the gears The rhythm when he's rolling, his music to his ears Cannonball, cannonball Any kind of weather, any time of day When the rig is ready, he'll be on his way He'll carry any cargo There, that's much better. Now let's get back to Gumman's Walk. Um, it's really interesting having Tab Hunter playing the bad son, which is kind of against the stereotype we have of Tab Hunter as a teen idol and uh, a closeted man. But we do, he kind of plays interestingly in this particular film, and it shows that he did have some chops as an actor. He wasn't just a good-looking guy who could say the words. His head is kind of a loose cannon, He's got no impulse control. When he gets into town, he's liquoring up and you know, sleeping with sex workers. He's um, getting into fights, treating everybody else like a piece of shit. He's got a lot to prove, and that's kind of an interesting approach to take. So you've instantly got a dynamic there. Um, Lee Hackett, the Van Heflin character, has got to keep up with his sons. He feels himself aging, but he wants to still know that he can beat them in a fight or shoot better than they can. He's got that deep need to be the alpha male, which is a kind of outdated um, concept these days, but it's very much part of the narrative in this movie. And then you've got the bad son, Ed, who's got to prove that he's better than his father and got to prove that he won't take shit from anyone and everybody else is a much lower on the scale than he is. You know there's going to be confrontation. And then you get Davey, who's kind of an intelligent guy. He's very attracted to um, a young woman called Clee, played by um, Catherine Grant, who is a half-breed Indian working for uh, an Indian agent store outside town. And at first I thought it was a kind of tacked-on relationship. But that kind of plays out differently as the movie progresses. And I will get back to that. Then, of course, there's the antagonism between Davy and Ed, which is more on Ed's part. Ed's got to kind of put Davy down. He says, yes, you're my brother, but, you know, you're not as good as I am. And to be honest, Lee believes him because um, Ed is much better shot than Davy is. He's much better with horses. And he's much more in line with Lee's view of the world, to a certain extent. So the ranchers short a few hands, and they so they hire a few um, Indian guys to help out, um, re, you know, rounding up the Mustangs and 
getting them sorted and getting them, um, making sure that they're not somebody else's has just wandered onto Hackett property, in which case they give them back. And one of the guys is a much better horseman than Lee is, and that causes trouble. So while they're rounding up some strays, Lee and the First Nations guy go chasing after a few strays along a mountain ridge um, above a very deep canyon. The First Nations guy is named Paul Chouard, and he's played by Bert Convy, who later went on to do a whole bunch of game show hosting gigs in America. But this is his first film role, and you only see him for a little bit because as they're riding along the ridge chasing the strays, Ed pushes the um, horse that Paul's riding, and it falls into a canyon and Paul is killed. Nobody else sees it, he thinks, but two of the local Indians see it and know that it happened. I'm going to stop it there for a moment because I want to talk about the character actors they've got in this film because there are some really good ones. I've mentioned Paul Birch already, but there are also a lot of other good character actors. We get Mickey Shaughnessy, who was in Edge of Eternity, playing a sheriff's deputy. Robert F. Simon, another fine character actor, plays a sheriff. Edward Platt plays the Indian agent. He, of course, was the chief in Get Smart. Um, we've got Ray Teal playing a guy called Jensen Sieverts in there, and I'll mention him a little bit later. As I said, Paul Birch is in there. Will Wright plays the judge. Will Wright was an old character actor. He must have been born old. But he plays the judge and gets some good lines in there. And there's a good uh, a guy called Harry Andrew who plays a doctor, and he gets some good lines and pushes the narrative along nicely by treating a gunshot wound later in the film. That kind of informs the narrative of exactly what it costs the town to have the Hackett's at so high a social prominence in their area. They've got a good supporting cast. So what happens is the case goes to court, and during the court case, a man called Jensen Sievert, played by Ray Till, comes up and says that he saw everything and nothing actually happened, and that Ed was nowhere near the horse when Paul went over the edge. And because he's a white man, he's believed more than the Indians because racism sucks. So Ed goes free and the crime doesn't get resolved. We find out that Jensen Sievers is actually a horse trader. And here's where the conflict escalates because Lee Hackett doesn't owe anybody anything and doesn't like owing anything. And yet he owes Jensen Sievers for the perjury. And so Sievers being quite a wily businessman, tells Lee that he wants 10 horses, 10 good horses to take back with him. And that then keeps the engine going and leads to the inevitable climax of the film. Now, I'm not going to talk about exactly what that climax is because I like it. I like the way it's framed on a hill. I like Van Heflin playing Lee. He is really good. There are some comments on IMDb saying, that Van Heflin was miscast as this kind of alpha male, boss of a ranch kind of guy. But he makes it work. As much as he made the kind of weaker and more uncertain character work in 310 to Yuma, he makes this one work as well. He's believable and he's tough. And also he wasn't particularly a, a kind of strong alpha character in Shane either. Got a lot of time for Van Heflin as an actor. There's some beautiful work in Gunman's Walk, and it's mostly up to him to carry the kind of heavy load and to make us understand exactly who Lee is, and he does it wonderfully. It's in the script, 
but his delivery of it really makes it, you know, really brings it home. Um, and th- there's a scene right at the end where Lee comes back to town and meets Davy and Davy's girlfriend Clay, and there's a moment that he has there with those two, which really is the redemption of the character. It's a surprising moment in this movie and a surprising moment to see in a 1950s film either. As well, sorry, not either, but as well. Because it's showing somebody expressing emotions that men weren't supposed to express openly at that stage in the 1950s. And I liked that. That really made it work for me. It brought it home and having Van Heflin play that role and play it in that way shows that he was playing without ego. He, you know, he had got to do all the grandiose stuff. He got to do the um, shooting bottles and cans and things like that. He got to do all the fun stuff. But then he got to do some really nice character work and emotional work at the end of this film. And I think it's a really satisfying ending. It really does give us what we need to understand the characters and to see, which is important when we're talking about a movie which is about civilization versus frontiers. It gives us that hope for the future of the characters. And I, I like that. And yeah, there are a lot of themes in this movie too. It's not just an empty bit of entertainment. It asks questions about what it is to be a man and what's the best way to be a man. It also gives us what the negative side of privilege is, how it affects the people who are not privileged and how it distorts the moral compass of people with privilege. It's definitely there in the text, and I like that. And also the dangers of privilege, where there are people who are willing to lie and distort the truth and disadvantage others in order to access the privilege that other people have, the way that Sievitz does by lying to the court. And then, of course, you've got that frontier versus civilization, which is a theme in a lot of Westerns. But I think it plays particularly well in this one. And then, of course, you've got the kind of Cain and Abel thing with the two brothers, which kind of goes back to biblical stories. It really, um, there's a little more to this movie than you first think. And that's kind of cool. I really like it for that reason. It's probably one of the things that Tarantino likes about it. It really works. And a lovely thing, too, is it's in colour, it's in cinemascope. You've got that crazy wide screen, so you get the full sense of being out in the frontier and the locations are well chosen. Most of it was filmed around Patagonia, Arizona, and also Wilcox, Arizona, Angels Camp, California, Elgin, Arizona. So they basically used the landscape to make it work. And if you're going to do a cinemascope colour film, you're definitely going to want to get some landscape in there because it just does add so much to the background of, of a big, wide-scale movie like this, told on a very broad stage, but still it's a story of basically three or four people and their lives. This one's definitely a hidden gem of Westerns, and I'm glad that Tarantino brought it to our attention as well. I may well have seen it eventually, but I probably wouldn't have seen it for a while. But Gunman's Walk does definitely give me that same multiple layers that you get from, say, the renowned Westerns. 
I've done a bit of research on Gunman's Walk in the reference books. I didn't actually go to the internet. Well, I went to the internet, but I didn't get stuff there. And there's very little about Gunman's Walks in my two main Western books. The first is the BFI Companion to the Western, which is a big, fat book full of really interesting stuff about Westerns. The only thing it says about it is that Van Heflin is very effective playing Lee Hackett in that movie. That's all it says. And I checked my other main reference book, Wild West Movies, which is uh, one that Kim Newman put out. And I've got a lot of respect for Kim Newman as a critic. And Gunman's Walk doesn't get a mention. He may not have been able to see it because it hasn't widely been available until the last few years. The only thing to mention is that a lot of the horse stunts that Ed does in the movie were actually done by Tab Hunter, who was a horseman. He had a horse ranch. He showed horses all through his life. And he liked horses. In fact, that was his horse that he was driving most of the time there, driving, riding most of the time there because, um, yeah, it was his favourite horse and it could do the job. And so he rode his own horse through much of the stuff. There's a bit where he's riding down um, the, through the town quite recklessly. And you can see it is Tab Hunter right, doing the riding. And he, he was good. He was a really fine horseman, uh, which is a little bit surprising, but given the other movies he did, he didn't do too many westerns. But, uh, yeah, it's just that little added bit that kind of fills in the gaps in a movie. And having Tap Hunter being so good on a horse was one of those um, nice little bits of stuff that we look for in these kind of movies. So, anyway, I'm going to take a break now. I'm going to get back. I'm going to talk about a much lesser film, but still somewhat interesting. Arizona Raiders starring Audie Murphy, Gloria Talbot and Ben Cooper. Yaki are good at this sort of torture. Oh. <laughs> Must be a million bucks in gold on those pack horses. He'd been called hero. Outlaw. This is a badge of the Arizona Rangers. We're going to make it something a man will be proud to wear. Why are you telling us? Because I want you and Willie to join me. Two men who rode with Quantrail? Exactly. So are the ones we're after. I've been expecting you, Clint. Well, I'm here. Confederate Grey, a saddle tramp's tatters, and a prisoner's chains. But it wasn't until he put on the star of an Arizona Ranger that he rode into the killingest fight of his hot-blooded life.
interesting guy, Audie Murphy. I just did a little bit of a deep dive on him. And apart from the fact he was one of the most decorated US soldiers in World War II, and I read through his Wikipedia page saying exactly what he did, amongst other things, taking out a tank with rifle grenades. And then I crunched the numbers. Audie Murphy was 20 years old when World War II ended. He's pretty much all of the really heroic stuff and all of the amazing acts of courage and mayhem that he did were done when he was a teenager, which is really, really strange. But as an actor, he wasn't great, but uh, he, he had a lot of troubles. He had some dependency issues with prescription medication that, that were given to him to treat what was then called battle fatigue or shell shock, but is now known as PTSD. In the mid-60s, he cold turkeyed himself off um, that medication by locking himself in a hotel room. So really weird and interesting guy, but we'll get on to the movie now. He wasn't a great actor, but you know, he, he gave it a go and he did what he could with what he had and who he was. And um, th there are a few interesting Audie Murphy movies. He was a good friend of Bud Bedica, one of my favourite um, Western directors. He was in The Simmering Kid, which was Bud Bedica's first directorial, his directorial debut. And Bud Bedica also wrote the script for Audie Murphy's last movie. So there you go. But to get to Arizona Raiders, Arizona Raiders has a really interesting start to it. I'll let you know who else is in the movie first. We've got Audie Murphy playing Clint. Michael Dante playing Brady, one of the main bad guys. Another cowboy actor that you see in a lot of films, Ben Cooper plays Clint's friend, Willie Martin. And Buster Crab, yes, Flash Gordon himself, turns up playing Captain Andrews, the leader of the Arizona Rangers, who he was helping to form. And we also get Gloria Talbot playing Martina, who is um, a yucky Indian woman who is working at a church in a town where the bad guys are holing up because the bad guys are going to rob a million dollars in gold from the U.S. Army, which is transporting it across the country by horseback. But the story starts really strangely, and it starts with an actor called Booth Coleman, who played Dr. Zayas in the TV series of the Planet of the Apes in the early 1970s, by the way. And he basically tells us the story of Quantrill's Raiders, as a, just as a newspaper man, um, he, he kind of narrates direct to camera. The fourth wall starts being broken right at the start of this film. I don't know whether that long single take, or almost single take, the Booth Coleman does, telling us the story of these guerrillas who fought for the South during uh, the Civil War. Actually, it's not a single take because they do cut away to some pictures that he's holding. But that runs for seven minutes right at the start of the film where he tells the story of Quantrill's Raiders. And the weird thing is that the bad guys in the whole rest of the movie are not Quantrill himself, but they're just guys who used to be part of Quantrill's Raiders, including Wardy Murphy's character. He's imprisoned for his crimes and is being transported across the country on the back of a wagon with his friend Willie when he's sort of recruited by captain andrews in a very weird kind of way we find out that uh, clint's brother danny is a part of the arizona rangers and clint doesn't want to borrow it he's um, given an opportunity to get away and as soon as he can he's going to light out for mexico so you've got that kind of redemption hero arc in this movie which happens almost by accident and at high price 
to a number of other people. Captain Andrews' plan is to for Clint and Willie to join up with their old cohort who are planning this um, robbery of the gold as it comes across the country. And as they find them, they find them holed up in a Yaki Indian town or you know, First Nations town where what the bad guys have just killed the priest and locked the leader of the town in a church. The leader's daughter, played by Gloria Talbot, cooks for the criminals, and, and um, there's an implication that she's been raped a number of times by them, though that implication is kind of lightly played on. And as Audie Murphy and Ben Cooper basically play double agents, in a sense, this could almost play like a spy movie in some ways, we get um, a number of different action scenes occurring, and we never quite know where Clint's moral compass is, which is, makes it kind of interesting. You can try to guess that, that eventually he's going to come good, and of course it's an Audie Murphy Western, so eventually he's going to come good. But there are some points at which it's kind of very, very iffy whether the character is going to follow that redemption arc or not. They do play it very well. Now, one of the other problems there is that the character is not very likable. He was a guerrilla fighter killing townsfolk of people with Quantrill during the Civil War, and yet he is our viewpoint hero character. It really does play in some very murky moral ground for the audience identification viewpoint. So, you know, should we like this guy? Should we not like this guy? Why should we like this guy? There are actors for whom that'll work, actors with a little more charisma than Audie Murphy has. But he does does have a kind of certain honesty about him in the way he plays the character. And though there's not much nuance in his acting, you can kind of sort of buy it. But you do get a kind of some interesting stuff happening, like the yucky Indians after the bad guys have killed the priests suddenly have no moral compass. This is part of the narrative of the story. And so they capture one of the bad guys who's killed their priest and ruined their town and shot a lot of their guys and they do cactus torture on him which basically means you get a whole bunch of cactus spines and you pincushion the guy's eyes and his ears and his mouth and all of his head and all of his body with cactus until he dies because there's no good wi-fi out in rural areas i suppose and we do see one guy covered in that kind of stuff and somebody actually does go cactus torture in the movie, which is kind of funny in a way. Cactus torture could become a meme. The movie's kind of, it is a B picture. It had a $400,000 budget. It's done by Columbia Pictures, who at the time did a few top-end things, but for the most part with kind of second-tier studio and a lot of their product from the 1940s onwards was at that second-tier of stuff. I mean, they did the Three Stooges um, comedies. They also did a whole bunch of very interesting at times B and C grade science fiction and horror movies during the period. And and so Arizona Raiders is the kind of movie that showed up at the Regal Theatre when I was a kid because we didn't get first-run big-budget movies when I was a kid watching Saturday matinees. We'd always get things like these Columbia Pictures movies from... may well have done Arizona Raiders, I'm not sure. But um, these kind of lower-budget things that... Uh, where there's not much at stake financially and you get the kind of actors you see on TV because we did see a lot of Audie Murphy movies on TV 
when I was a kid, they sold like tons of them to Australian television in mass amounts, and they'd show up on Saturday afternoon matinees, sometimes with a second or two of the more sanguine violence cut out of them, which was kind of disconcerting because just when you're waiting for the good gory bits, they'd cut away from it, and you knew they cut away from it because the cuts were really obvious. But you do get that redemption arc. Leaving aside how Audie Murphy plays the redemption arc, you do get it. You do get the reality of his situation being brought to home in such a way that Clint understands it. And for me, at least, and this is you know, a personal thing, I think that his redemption arc occurs for the wrong reasons. It occurs because out of revenge rather than out of aspiration. He's getting revenge for people who've been killed by the bad guys and you know, fridging people these days is not something that you do in any kind of reasonable, dramatic presentation. Maybe in the hands of better writers that would have played differently. There would have been a non-simplistic reason for Clint's arc. You need to show how his moral compass gets realigned correctly. And Martina, the um, First Nations woman, played by Gloria Tullard, who wasn't, um, is maybe intended to be that resetting of the moral compass. But because of the way that it's played and because of the way it's presented, the revenge aspect of it is much, much more powerful. And it's the one to which the character reacts most strongly. Now, Martina more enlightened time would have been a really interesting character she's a woman whose husband and children have been killed she's been working with the priest and um, kind of helping in the church she's living there with her parents she's been through a lot and yet she abides and for me she's probably the most interesting character in the movie but Gloria Talbot isn't given a lot to play with there missed opportunity and that's a little bit of a shame because there could have been so much more. and But again, you've got the low budget and you've got to get all the action scenes in and understand the constraints under which the people making this film worked. But for me, it would have been really, really interesting to give her a little more agency, even though she does do some very brave things and, and things that do help Clint in his endeavours. There's still something there that I would have liked to have seen more of. And unfortunately, it's lacking. Now, Buster Crab playing Captain Andrews, Buster Crab is an even worse actor than Audie Murphy, let's be honest. Really good-looking guy, fantastic athlete, terrific moustache, but he really wasn't um, gifted in the thespic arts. And he'd been doing it for over 30 years by this stage. I first, first saw him in the late 50s TV series called Captain Gallant of the Foreign Legion, where he played Captain Gallant, and that one went for two years. And it turned up a lot on Australian television. So we learned a lot about what Hollywood thought the Foreign Legion was about. You know, they'd take people out into the desert with a bunch of camels and funny hats on their head and have them shoot people dressed up like Arabs. And there was a TV series in the 1950s, an entertainment for children. But then Buster Crab did play Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, so we'll give him some props for that. Even though, yeah, he kind of cash checks for his entire career. But uh, to get back to the action scenes, yeah, there are some good ones. There are some bits where the bad guys are bailed up in a canyon by a combination of uh, the good guys and a whole bunch of very pissed-off, yucky um, Indigenous people. 
And one of the things that the Indigenous guys do is to get a whole bunch of kind of thorny bushes and lob them down at these guys on horseback using spears as kind of levers. So basically they're raining spikes down on these guys, which struck me as a really interesting move there and um, a little bit different. It's just one of those little bits that some movies do with a fairly low budget that try to differentiate themselves. And there are a lot of very sharp, spiny bits of vegetation in this movie, one way or the other. A lot of the countryside through which the they travel in various parts of it are covered in very tall cacti, just right for the cactus torture. By the way, why do you need cactus torture? If you can set a fire, you can torture someone much more effectively than by sticking them with lots of little bits of cactus. Um, yeah, it, it does seem like a, it's more a way of branding themselves as, yeah, they're the guys who do cactus torture than from any practical need to torture people to get information from them. It's, um, yeah, it's a slightly odd choice there. It's like being known as the people who jam sticks up people's asses. Instead, we get, you know, don't go down that way. The people down there will stick a whole bunch of cactus spines into your eyeballs and then leave you to die in, a, in front of a church. The Arizona Raiders is very much a different and kind of distant second gunman's walk, and it pretty much comes down to this. No good actors. Even the character actors they get in the second and third tier roles, with the exception of Booth Coleman doing the narrative at the start, are pretty piss poor and ordinary. Whereas Gunman's Walk, which admittedly was a larger budget film, did have interesting character actors in it. All of the roles felt lived in. Watching some YouTube tutorials on making your own movies. Um, what I do is can never be considered making movies from my point of view, but I've been trying to learn. And a couple of things that have been said have been very interesting. That said, The two most important things, well, there are actually four important things you need when making your film. They always call it your film. The first one is script. The second one is casting. If you get those two right, they said you can forgive a lot else. The other two are sound and light. But they, there's a big emphasis on the script's got to be great and the casting's got to be great. Even if you don't get somebody who's exactly right, you can find out, you can get them to give you something that'll make it work if you get an actor who's competent and who seems to understand the role. And casting is just so crucial to that kind of stuff. And where Arizona Raiders most fails is they use name people. Yeah, Audie Murphy had a name and Buster Crab had a name and people knew them from their previous work to a certain extent. But neither of them was, good act was a good actor, whereas if they had got somebody at the same level who'd say, was a young up-and-comer who'd done something on TV. Ben Cooper's an example. He's pretty good in his role. But they really kind of just took the easier option. So what was this movie about, ultimately? That's probably the last question that we need to ask about it. And why would it be interesting for Tarantino? I think that it has that moral ambiguity. It has that you don't know whether Clint is going to go one way or the other. And you don't like him as a character. He's got a very unlikable protagonist. You've got that to-the-camera narrative right at the start of the film, which you know, you're being lectured by an old-fashioned newspaper man about the history of some very nasty um, thugs, basically, during this and after the Civil War. And the backstory is kind of marginal. By the way, the guy that got to play Quantrill in the flashback sequences at the start of the film is about 25 years too old to play the character. 
but I'll leave that aside. So you've got that really unusual structure. You've got that moral ambiguity happening there. You've got what's potentially a strong female character who doesn't get much to do, unfortunately. And you've got a very kind of limited area in which the story takes place. You get It's all, all shot on location. There's very few interiors. It's a kind of movie that a down-on-their-luck actor with some success in the past might get a role in. So maybe that's the relation they've got there. Rick Dalton, the Leonardo DiCaprio character is falling down the chain of Hollywood as we and once upon a time in Hollywood. So maybe Tarantino's starting off point in saying that one of the influences is Arizona Raiders is to show that there is a kind of diminishing returns to really descend for a certain kind of actor who just doesn't get the breaks. So maybe that's it as well. Uh, there could be more to it, and if I see any more after I see the movie, you'll definitely know about it. But, yeah, I mean, I'm glad I saw both of these films because they they were off my radar and I can kind of see the potential in both of them to be so much better than they were, but that the basic seeds of an interesting couple of movies was there. And I don't mind watching a Western now and then. I mean, I was weaned on Westerns and so it's a filmic language with which I am very familiar. Should you see them? Well, it depends on whether you like Westerns and whether you want to kind of get that influence on Tarantino thing that I've been kind of going through as a part of your what viewing until the once upon a time in Hollywood comes out I'm going to do model shop I'm going to do a couple of other movies that he suggested but it really is up to you whether you want to go that way and uh, maybe you think it's a better movie than I do particularly Arizona Raiders and not, though I do like Gunman's Walk so much more but uh, let me know one way or the other if you um, enjoyed them or if you think they were total shit and a waste of your lifespan, in which case I sort of apologise, but ultimately it was up to you. Anyway, that's about it this time around. I'm going to go and watch Top Gun now because I've got to watch it for the ABC radio gig tomorrow and I'm not looking forward to it because I'm not that big a fan of either Tom Cruise or Tony Scott. But you do what you do. Anyway, in the meantime, look after yourselves. Watch some good movies. Watch some bad movies. Watch some movies that inspire you and others that nauseate you just for a bit of a change of tone. By the way, I do have to mention, Richard, I apologise that I haven't got you into the credits yet, but I will do so. You did bring it to my attention in the sweetest possible way on Facebook. And so our friend Richard in the middle of America, I've got so many Richards. Um, is a part of the Patreon supporters who let me watch incredibly good movies I might not otherwise have been able to access and who also pay to keep the files hosted. Anyway, look after yourselves. I'll be back very soon with a Martian Drive-In podcast where I'm going to rip apart the announcements about the Marvel Cinematic Universe because I'm that kind of fanboy. And I'll be back soon with another Paleo Cinema as well. Look after yourselves, and I'll play some music after the credits, just as a post-credits sequence for you. Take care of yourselves. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Drive-In Podcast, done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, 
Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H, our set photographer, Mark D, our extra, and David L, our extra. Kerry H, who is the accountant. And our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. We really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. See?